Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. What you see is what you think you see, but what you think you see isn't really what you see. And that, my friends, explains the news, science, our government, and pretty much the world today. What's scary is how many people are just duped into believing their eyes without ever engaging their brains. We're told our money has value. We're told the economy we're currently in is capitalism. We're told that our system of government is as the founders envisioned. We're told that gender is a construct. We're told the rich are the problem. We're told that taxes are fair. These and so many more are shoveled to us by politicians, talking heads, and headline news. And we, the general population, don't worry about anything but those headlines. If the headlines say it, If the man on the screen tells us, it must be true. Why would they lie? On today's episode, first we'll allow God some much-needed vacation time. We got this, don't worry. And then we'll totally screw everything up. So, take stock of the prepper supplies you've got stored in case of war, EMP, or wrath from the Almighty, and get ready to get social. Because, although here we go, were we ever really here to begin with? Some say that there's a fine line between scientific discovery and experimentation and playing God. In fact, Slate.com came out with an article in 2017 entitled The Problem with Playing God, in which they decried the connotations of that phrase and advocated for it to uh, go away as it was hampering scientific advancement. The author of the article pins the phrase back on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 200 years ago. I've never read the book, although I probably should, but apparently Frankenstein's monster reads the book Paradise Lost and identifies with both Adam and a fallen angel. The monster then confronts Dr. Frankenstein, saying, quote, A cursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God, in pity, made man beautiful and alluring after his own image. But my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. The author goes on to say, quote, The admonition against playing God has since been ceaselessly invoked as a rhetorical boogeyman. Secular and religious critic and journalist alike have summoned the term to deride and outright dismiss entire areas of research and technology, including stem cells, genetically modified crops, recombinant DNA, geoengineering, and gene editing. As we near the two-century commemoration of Shelley's captivating story, we would be wise to shed this shorthand lesson and to put this part of the Frankenstein legacy to rest in its proverbial grave. Now she asks what exactly it means to play God, and why should it be objectionable anyway? She says that nobody finds selective breeding of plants or animals, grafting of plants or trees, or in vitro fertilization is objectionable. We don't seem to have a problem intervening when there's a disaster that we term an act of God. We're okay with organ transplantation, cancer treatments, blood transfusions, etc. But what exactly are we missing out on because we have religious zealots that are so concerned about areas of science deemed playing God? In the theoretical world, I'd probably agree that we should have a very clearly defined delineation between scientific advancement and playing God. I think we start with humans and work our way through lesser created forms of life and plant life, but with humans, genetic manipulation should be off-limits, which to me would include things like cloning or designer children, attempts at modifying the created systems of the body to manipulate them into doing what they can but shouldn't, And yes, I'm specifically saying that what we've done with the COVID mRNA gene manipulation should have been and should be off limits, as the more information that comes out, the more we realize that we have no idea what we've done to humanity. All the way back in episode 55 of the Logical Christian Podcast, there was a segment entitled Parts as Parts. In this segment, I reviewed the claim that scientists had successfully created mouse embryos with no sperm, 
no egg, and no womb. Boiled down, the experiment was a complete failure. Almost none of the attempts at creating an embryo actually started to grow. Those that did were severely mutated and aborted themselves within a few days. Beyond that, the scientists... They created nothing. They used cells that were already created, manipulated them into producing specific types of cells, then put the resultant embryo into a lab-reproduced mouse womb, and from the broadest sense, it took a higher intelligence in order to perform this creation or manipulation. So what they made was a mess, trying to prove that we could grow parts or grow creatures with the sole purpose of scavenging parts. This is playing God. Well, here we are again, and more mice are being used by humans to play God to do what not only shouldn't be done, but what doesn't need to be done. Found on WFLA in Tampa via MSN.com headline, Scientists Create Mice with Cells from Two Males for First Time. And unless you're one of the most clueless among us, you know exactly where this is heading, at least in part. But as we did with our last sensational mousy headline, let's dig a little farther than just the byline, which reads, quote, For the first time, scientists have created baby mice from two males. Eh, let's see what actually took place here. The author... Laura Ungar, likely someone that gets really worked up and excited about something, then is perennially disappointed because things don't go as envisioned, says, quote, This raises the distant possibility of using the same techniques for people. Although experts caution that very few mouse embryos developed into live mouse pups, and no one knows whether it will work for humans. Womp womp. Sad trombone. Sorry, Laura. Diana Laird, a, quote, stem cell and reproductive expert at the University of California, San Francisco, said, quote, it's an important step in both stem cell and reproductive biology. But she wasn't in on the research, just commenting on it like me. So I guess that puts me at the same level as a, quote, stem cell and reproductive expert at the University of California, San Francisco. So that is going to go on my business card. Anyway, let's take a look at this study, shall we? Luckily, the dejected Ms. Ungar has linked it for us so we can take a look. This is found in the journal Nature under the title of Generation of Functional Oocytes from Male Mice in Vitro. Now, I'm not sure if this is pronounced oocytes or oocytes. The dictionary says oocytes, but there are two O's, and by gum, we're going to use them. Oh, and this journal entry only gives us uh, the abstract of the study. Then you have to pay, and I'm not going to pay for this tripe. Backing up a bit further, what is an oocyte? Well, I'm likely talking down to you, but just pretend that you don't know. If I recall from my middle school days, which was the last time I had a life sciences course, an oocyte is an immature egg, an immature ovum, if you will. Oocytes develop to maturity from within a follicle. These follicles are found in the outside layer of the ovary, so don't even try to say that's not where they're found. I'll fight that battle to the death. During every reproductive cycle, several follicles begin to develop. Typically, if memory serves, only one oocyte each cycle will become a mature egg and be ovulated from its follicle. This process is known as and say it with me, ovulation. I know your next question, and yes, a woman is born with all the oocytes she will ever have. This number decreases naturally with age. This may be why they're called oocytes. Uh-oh, my oocytes are decreasing naturally with age. Age also reduces the quality and genetic stability of the oocytes. <laughs> Uh-oh, this is why it's harder to get pregnant after 35. Oh, Uh-oh. The fully mature ovum is visible to the human eye, measuring 0.1 millimeters. It is about the size of the period at the end of the sentence, which is huge, but that might be because I've got my browser zoomed up to the max 500%, like a boomer. Okay, so you might have surmised, I don't know any of this stuff. That was all a direct quote, minus the snark, from verywellfamily.com. So apparently this oocyte will begin maturing, then split into two, and those will also split. And I guess out of all of this chromosome reduction, you get one mature ovum, which is the egg cell, which of course is awaiting a swimmer to look deeply into her eyes and say, you complete me. And then Barack Obama Jr. was born. If you know where that comes from, you know. Just another lie told by the first black president of a massively racist nation. Anyway, question. If someone going through depression is depressed, would that mean that I, by the transitive property, would be digressed? 
doesn't matter. At this point, I'm going to jump back and forth from the study abstract, which is free, but uses words that I don't think are actually real words, to the WFLA article, which is written for cottonhead and any muggins like me, to try to make sense of what kind of God's wrath-inducing, cute little fuzzy, nose-twitching, soulless monsters have been created. Keep in mind, males carry an XY chromosome, females carry the XX chromosome. This is important. So they took existing skin cells from the existing tails of existing male mice and transformed them, I'm assuming, through the blackest of magic, into, quote, induced pluripotent stem cells. Now, again, I may be talking down to you. Uh, do we need to do this again? I don't think so. And, quote, induced pluripotent stem cell is basically a generic everyday existing cell from an existing multicellular organism that has been altered using four specific genes, which those are MYC, OCT3-4, SOX2, and KLF4, probably some of my favorite genes, to be reprogrammed into a stem cell. And I think we all know, for serious this time, that stem cells are kind of the mac daddy of cells, right? Stem cells can become anything, more or less. And so the hope is that these could be used to repair physical damage, grow new organs for transplant, reverse diseases, etc. The naturally occurring pluripotent stem cells are the type of stem cells that can become anything, organs, neurons, whatever. The problem is that the source of these are generally the embryonic stem cells, and the source of those are the destruction through abortion of embryos, or early stage babies, to be more accurate. So this is something we don't really want to be doing. But with this ability to reprogram existing cells into being induced pluripotent stem cells, cells, we get these from adults, it's non-destructive, and they hold the same kind of promise, at least in theory. Then, quote, from WFLA, through a process that involved growing them and treating them with a drug, quote, from the abstract, we efficiently converted the XY chromosome set to XX without an additional Y chromosome in mouse pluripotent stem cells. So, Basically, using drugs and manipulation, they stripped the Y part of the male chromosome and either duplicated the X or added an X. Not sure. They didn't really say it. But they did it efficiently, so that's nice. Additionally, they successfully eradicated trisomy 16, a model of Down syndrome in these cells. And just saying, this, in my humble opinion, is the hook to let the researchers keep playing God. We can cure Down syndrome if you just let us keep going. Bottom line, they took existing cells, genetically manipulated them into being stem cells, then genetically manipulated those cells to make them female cells rather than male cells, and then they forced these new cells into making functional egg cells. Now, the male cells turned stem cells, turned female cells, turned oocytes, turned ovum, were then artificially fertilized using existing male sperm, and the resulting embryos were implanted into existing female mice. Seven, that's 1.1%, seven of these 630 fertilized embryos went on to grow into live mouse pups. The article goes on to say that those seven mice grew what appeared to be normally and actually became parents, quote, in the usual way. <clears throat> so the article goes on to cite the conclusions of our stem cell and reproductive expert at the University of California, San Francisco, who wasn't involved in the study and her colleague also not involved in the study. One possible avenue opened up would be reproducing endangered mammals from a single male. Now, this fascination with bringing back extinct animals or protecting endangered animals is just baffling to me. Literally, the only reason this sentiment exists is because it's borrowed from the Christian worldview, to manage and care for the earth. The evolution theory, which I guarantee these people subscribe to, says that extinction is natural and good and is all part of the natural process. For some reason, though, scientists feel they must protect endangered species because what we have right now, much like the global temperature, is the correct thing and should never be different ever. This is where evolution of all forms needs to stop, so says science. Next, down the road, male same-sex couples could have, quote, biological children while circumventing the ethical and legal issues of donor eggs. Are they implying in this day and age that males can't produce children? <laughs> Oof, I wonder if they've uh, been rightly canceled yet.
And is this kind of manipulation more or less ethical than egg donation? Both of those methods, I'm assuming, would utilize the test tube baby process to start the embryo, and then it requires a woman for embryo growth and baby growth, etc. As of now, I don't believe that there are any babies being created in the test tubes and then an artificial lab womb, although our previous mouse experiment claims they can do it, and there are labs that are chomping at the bit to do so. Of note, says our experts, however, is the extreme inefficiency of this process, as of now. 1% of embryos surviving is very low. That means that nearly 99% of embryos, which you and I would call life, you know, living, very early stage, unique, in this case, creatures, died. This is the pro-life argument against freezing embryos and in vitro fertilization, that there are a lot of embryos, or babies, that will die, and there are a lot of frozen embryos that will be left to just time out in the freezer. Now, I'll be honest, I, I see myself on both sides of the issue on this one, and I think it would probably come down to intent. I think a Christian pro-life couple that utilizes this process would do the minimum necessary to attempt to have a child. Those that have no appreciation for life, those that I believe are using this process in an evil way, are people like Paris Hilton, who recently told the world that she and her husband have 20 embryos currently frozen because they're all boys. They have a boy already. They'd like a girl. So the plan for now is just to keep creating these embryos until they get a girl, then implant that one and continue on. What about the 20 boys that they've created? Well, likely they'll be placed in a hazardous bio-waste container eventually and disposed of. But from a Christian point of view, this would be 20 abortions, as these are 20 unique creations, 20 souls. This is nothing different than taking the morning after pill or any form of abortion that is the intent to, to kill, right? Just kill everything until we get what we want. Finally, assuming this process could even be feasible in humans, and I for one pray that it would not work, she cautions about the potential for, quote, mutations and errors that may be introduced in a culture dish before using stem cells to make eggs. Oh, oh, if we play in God's domain, we may screw it up? You sure? Hmm. Now, I tend to look at this from a very simplistic view. What have we done here? We took a cell from a creature that was already created, fully formed, created using a mom and a dad, and natural mousy love processes. They took a cell with all the normal cellular information and structure. They genetically modified that cell into being a stem cell, which that, to me, is the real achievement. I'm a firm believer in stem cell research, but not at the expense of humans, no matter what level of development they're in. So if we can create stem cells from regular cells and use them to create or repair damaged organs, etc., hey, that's fantastic. So we genetically modify already created cells with already created genes to replicate stem cells that we already know the created form of, and at least some of the created purpose for, and then we remove the created chromosome that we know defines maleness, which these days should be the end-all determinant of if you're male or female, not clothing, prosthetic surgeries, or feelings, and double up the created chromosome that determines femaleness to replicate the created order. And now, now that we have a female stem cell, because the only way to get an ovum, an egg, is from a female, as females are the only beings that can have eggs, they then force this general-purpose utility cell to produce an egg through drug therapy, knowing what is needed by analyzing what has already been created in order to produce this egg. Then they fertilize it in a Petri dish, but let's call this a semi-normal fertilization. They needed the male sperm to fertilize the female egg, and then they implant the embryo back into the female because the female is the only one that can gestate and birth a baby. And through all of this, they had a failure rate of 99%. This research team took a long, complicated, destructive route to prove that it takes a male and a female to create a baby, that only the female can produce eggs, only the male can provide the key to female egg fertilization, only the female can gestate the resultant embryo, and only the female can give birth to the fetus, which is Latin for offspring, you know, the baby. They proved that it takes a mommy and a daddy to make a baby. Well, I mean, it doesn't describe it in scientific detail, and it really doesn't say anything about mice, but I mean, the Bible already told us this, right? God created the male and female. We had Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? I mean, which is tacky, I know, but accurate, so I guess we could probably call that tacurate. All animals that went onto the ark were at least a male and a female pair, so that when they got off the ark, they could be fruitful and multiply after their own kind. We see nothing in the Bible that shows two men or two women having a child. 
We only see a man and a woman creating a child. We only see women giving birth to the child. And we only see homosexuality as a grave, perverse sin that will ultimately send its adherents to hell if they choose to live a life of unrepentant, willing, continued disobedience to God. In short, this research team proved the created order. Sure, I mean, they did some amazing science-y things, but why? Well, the why was not to discover the miracle of creation, the unbelievable complexity in creation, the wonder of procreation, and marvel at the fact that for 6,000 years, through billions of people, this process has continued with an almost perfect track record. I mean, sure, due to sin, due to entropy, some errors have been introduced, some mutations have occurred, but even that has a repair process that's kept humans basically functioning the same, looking the same, procreating with an amazingly high and consistent success rate for six millennia. No, they did this to prove that creating isn't that hard, that it's, it's not really a miraculous thing, that anyone can do it. They wanted to prove that this is an evolutionary thing. If they can decode it, then it must have come about naturally. And they want to prove that any combination of any human can create humans. It's a simple matter of manipulating a few cells and bada-bing, bada-boom, here's your shiny new baby. This is an attempt at trying to prove that maleness and femaleness is all in our heads. It's a theoretical construct that's been forced on amorphous humans by most likely religious zealots from back in the day. This is not playing God. This is an attempt to disprove there is a God. So we can just worship the creature because there is no creator, which means we make the rules. Now, I fear that in the future, the speed bumps that have been put in place to keep us from playing in God's domain will be completely removed. I think that in the last couple mouse experiments, and I firmly believe that with the COVID mRNA injections, we've already kind of wump-wumped our way over a couple of those speed bumps. I wonder how many more we'll be allowed to disregard before God intervenes. And that doesn't necessarily mean the rapture. Will there be another Tower of Babel moment? And that could mean anything. A virus with real killing power wiping out massive swaths of humanity where this kind of knowledge and research is lost to the ages. A nuclear war, a massive EMP that wipes out devices, research, etc. Remember, everything is stored either on a hard drive now or more and more on centralized servers termed the cloud. An EMP could wipe out all of that information and all backups in the flash of a dirty nuclear explosion right at about the height in our atmosphere that the Chinese weather spy balloon was floating, incidentally. We have prophecy in the Bible, including what we typically term end times prophecy, but clearly we don't have any prophecy between the time of that writing and the rapture. We have no idea how many years, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years this planet will keep spinning and continuing as is. We have no idea if God has just the one last event for this earth, for humanity, or if we have many, many more major events coming. All we know is that all humanity, all life, will not be wiped out by a flood again. Now, the next election cycle is starting to ramp up. I don't want to interject politics into the segment, and I don't believe that we should attempt a theocracy. I've made that clear many times before. But I do think we need to ensure we elect at every level local, state, and federal, including the president, those individuals that most closely align with biblical ideologies. In this case, the sacredness of life and the potential calamity from attempting to play God. We need people that have a respect for life, for humanity, and will enact whatever policies, withhold whatever funding, disband whatever agency, leave whatever organization, rescind whatever agreement, etc., etc., that has a disdain for humanity, a disdain for life, a hostility toward creation. Those that are strong enough, that are principled enough to do this, may not always be the obvious choice of candidate. They may not always be the most Christian-appearing choice. We all need to do our homework and research on this. Man has been allowed to discover and do some just amazing things, but man must have a limit as to who man thinks he is. Either we put up the boundaries, or make no mistake, God will. Well, it's about that time again, comrades. Between this series looking at the 45 communist goals for America, as read into the congressional record in 1963 by a Democrat... And the alternating episodes looking at the American Genesis, the founding documents of this country, are you starting to feel like the frog in boiling water yet? Now, from what I've heard, that idea that a frog will just sit in the water if it starts cool and is slowly raised to boiling is just a myth. But who cares about that right now? If you look at our founders and the founding documents, and then you look at the massive shift in how our country functions today, not quite 250 years later, what happened? And more importantly, how did it happen? And the answer is, little changes, slowly but surely, 
minor shifts in policies brought on by minor shifts in ethics and morality. And over time, a very small deviation from the correct course gets us way, way off. And here we are. Now, how much did the communists do directly? How much did they influence? And how much did our own sinful degradation account for? I have no idea. But I do know that uh, through the first two-thirds of the communist goals, by my count, we've capitulated to 70% of their demands. And that leads us into goal number 31. Goal 31, quote, belittle all forms of American culture and discourage the teaching of American history on the ground that it was only a minor part of the big picture. Give more emphasis to Russian history since the communists took over. Okay, well, I mean, how do you score this one? I mean, I literally don't think I can give a point or even a half a point for this one. If we break it into the component parts of the goal, we have this. One, belittle all forms of American culture. Two, discourage the teaching of American history on the ground that it was only a minor part of the big picture. And three, give more emphasis to Russian history since the communists took over. Now, working from the third to the first, I don't think that we ever gave more emphasis to Russian history in schools. My history classes started when the Soviet Union was still a thing. My history classes ended when the Soviet Union was no longer a thing. It was Russia and a bunch of other smaller independent countries. And neither end of that spectrum do I recall Russian history being a major part of the curriculum. The Soviet Union and then Russia were part of history, but no more than the fact that they were our main enemy in the world. There was what I would call an appropriate amount of discussion based on the Berlin Wall falling, reuniting East and West Germany, Gorbachev opening up the Soviet Union and his leadership through perestroika, if you remember that one, which is political or economic restructuring. And what about glasnost, right? Uh, that's transparency and openness. And then the massive conglomeration of countries under the Soviet Union starting in 1955, finally dissolving 36 years later, well, that was a big deal. So you'd expect that there would be a solid amount of teaching around that. Other than that, no, I don't think Russian history was given any special emphasis. Now, the second point of discouraging the teaching of American history, because it was only a minor part of the big picture, yeah, no, no. Now, there are socialist forces and anti-American forces today, right now, that are discouraging the teaching of American history. But that's coming from the point that we were colonizers and racists and murderers and everything else, allegedly. But from what I can remember and from what I know now, there are still American history units and courses and world history units and courses. And even those are split into different eras. Now, as of now, history is under attack, with probably the most common proposal being to not teach the founding of our country, not teach about Columbus, not teach about the founders or the revolution, just relegating important American history to the period starting with, say, Andrew Jackson, because then you can show how evil Americans are in forcing the Indians into reservations, or maybe start around the Civil War to show the racism in America. We also now have the bald-faced lying history of the so-called 1619 Project that they're trying to shove into history classes, calling that the real founding of our country. And just look how racist America is and was and is and still is and always will be. Now, I honestly think that the problem we have is that I, I don't think we've ever taught true American history, meaning the good and the bad. This country and her people are far from perfect, but how many of us remember hearing the bad, dark eras of our country in school? The easiest example is the era just prior to World War II, eugenics. Have you heard of eugenics? This was the attempt by Americans to breed the perfect race. This is where we institutionalized, sterilized, lobotomized, etc., those we felt were retarded, incompetent, criminal, ne'er-do-wells, etc. This was also the time that we tried to eliminate the black population because they were black, which is where the start of Planned Parenthood came in, with the specific stated intent of killing black babies. We were doing so well at engineering a master race that a very charismatic leader in Germany took notice and, uh, well, he instructed his underlings to copy what we were doing and improve on it. Yeah, in history class, we definitely learned of the evil of Hitler and Mengele and the Ubermensch and the Aryans, but you and I were likely never taught about where he got his ideas. 
In fact, the study of eugenics was so sullied that those in the United States that were proponents had to go underground and change the name, splitting it into basically two areas of study, genetics and social engineering, or some derivative of these. Eugenics never really went away. It just changed, and the U.S. is still actually doing this. They just do it more cleverly. But did you ever hear of this in history? I'd say likely you probably didn't. The United States has some very dark, very evil parts to its history and its past. The problem we have with teaching history is that we've never taught American history honestly. So now we have generations of Americans that can't defend American history because we don't actually know what's true and what's not. But with regard to the goal the communists had for us to discourage the teaching of American history under the guise that it was just a minor part of the whole, no, I don't think that was ever done. That leaves us with the first part, belittle all forms of American culture. Okay, well, that's a huge open-ended statement, isn't it? I mean, I guess I'd liken this goal to something like destroy American pride, right? Now, we know that Lee Greenwood is proud to be an American, and whichever Republican candidate is fast enough, in this case Trump, is who is also proud to be an American right next to Lee Greenwood. And Lee is proud to sing this song at uh, every single one of their rallies, and his rally has done so for years. Did you know that Lee Greenwood is 80 years old? Yeah, he's born in 1942. I mean, dang, dude is holding up really well. But did the communists destroy American pride? Well, again, I'd have to say no. Our American culture has been under attack since the very beginning. I mean, there were those that were Americans during the Revolution that were secretly wanting the Brits to march to victory. We went through a civil war where both sides felt they were protecting American culture. We had protests, factions, traitors in and out of our elected leadership for our entire history. And the main current battle today to destroy American culture is using racism as a vehicle to do so, as well as a sidecar of homophobia. And this is just showing us how whateverist America has always been and how hateful it is to be an American. And I'll throw this prediction out there. No matter if America stands or falls, I don't think that American pride by those that understand the history of this country will ever be shaken. So although we're under perpetual attack by some group, communists being one of them, I don't think they or any group has belittled all forms of American culture. For all that's taken place, considering the slowly rising temperature in the pot of water, I just don't think that this goal, even in part, has been accomplished to any degree worth noting. So that puts us at 21 of 31 goals accomplished, uh, which is a slightly better number than we were just a moment ago. But let's continue on looking at goal number 32. Number 32, quote, support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture, education, social agencies, welfare programs, mental health clinics, etc. <laughs> oh my, okay. Well, in contrast to goal number 31, this one is uh this one is worse, right? So does centralized control mean socialist control? And I'd say yeah, kind of, actually. The definition of socialism is, quote, any of various theories or systems of social organization in which the means of producing and distributing goods is owned collectively or by a centralized government that often plans and controls the economy. Okay, so the idea that socialism is a collective ownership of something, that's a pipe dream. Let's just dispel that right away. That's a utopian worldview of socialism. It doesn't exist. It's never existed. It will never exist. Not in a self-centered, sinful world, at least. So a real-world definition would be more along the lines of a system in which the means of producing and distributing goods is owned by a centralized government that plans and controls the economy. Now, if you translate that to the microcosms of education, social agencies, welfares, mental health, etc., you start to see that, yeah, we, we've clearly socialized many, many aspects of our American systems. Look at education. How was that done in the early history of the United States? Well, it was either done at home, generally by the mom. Maybe a mom would teach a few different kids. If there was a public school, they'd be relatively small. Many or all ages would be taught together. A fair amount of the curriculum, especially reading and grammar, writing, spelling, that was all heavily Bible-based because the essentials could be taught as well as Christianity and morality all at the same time. Now, did you know that the public education, the form we have right now, is completely a communist model. 
Yeah, but of course, as Americans, we can do it better. More right, less communisty. That's what we always think. Sure, it's a system that's never worked well anywhere. Let's try it. We can do it. The United States Department of Education was signed into being in 1979 and began operating on May 4th, 1980. Yeah, this horrible department that needs to be disbanded, ASAP, has only been around for 45 years. We didn't need it to start with, and we definitely don't need it now. This is a bloated, inefficient, dictatorial, centralized organization that gets fed tax dollars from every state, then decides who gets what. All totally based on fairness and need, not at all based on politics of said state or district. Whatever they started as, they are an anti-religious, or more accurately anti-Christian, organization that are in partnership with the Communist Teachers Unions and promote every form of degeneracy possible, as well as teach historical lies and spin, and their failures are really starting to show. The call to eliminate them is becoming more widespread as the destruction of our kids, especially our girls, is becoming more blatant. Not only should they be disbanded and eliminated, there are probably a number of those involved that should be brought up on child endangerment charges of some stripe and thrown into federal prison for a long time. What about health care? Socialized medicine, anyone? I mean, yeah, I know we call it Obamacare, and it's not quite socialized medicine yet, but it's close, and that's the desire of every Democrat out there. Just let the government pay for it. Look, Canada does it. Great Britain does it. Sweden does it. Medical services don't cost anything there. It's all free. Yay! Except that it's not. It's built into the massive taxes you pay every year. And at that, it's so bloated, so poorly and inefficiently managed. The wait times are unfathomable. The level of care is subpar. The equipment is scarce. I mean, look, there's a reason that women go to Mexico for butt implants, but everyone else comes to the U.S. for medical care. We haven't completely screwed it up yet with socialized medicine. But they're trying because, again, we can do it better. We can make a stupid, unworkable failure of a system work because we're the super country or something. I don't know. So what is socialized medicine? Well, as the definition says, it's uh, a system of national health care for everyone in which the means of scheduling and performing health care is owned by a centralized government that plans and controls the distribution of health care. This is where Obama said when asked regarding the proposal of Obamacare by an audience member if there would be a simple age cutoff for receiving treatments, surgeries, or devices such as pacemakers, or would there be a carve-out for maybe vitality, quality of life, etc. And we're not going to solve every difficult problem in terms of end-of-life care. A lot of that is going to have to be we as a culture and as a society starting to make better decisions within our own families and, and uh, for ourselves. But what we can do is make sure that at least some of the waste that exists in the system that's not making anybody's mom better, uh, that is loading up on additional tests or additional drugs that the evidence shows is not necessarily going to improve care, that at least we can let doctors know and your mom know that, you know what, maybe this isn't going to help. Maybe you're better off uh, not having the surgery, but taking uh, the painkiller. So basically, no, just take the pain pill, grandma, and shut up. Maybe die and decrease the surplus population. How about that? And that may sound like a crass use of Scrooge's statement, but that's called the complete live system. This was and is promoted by the architect of Obamacare, Zeke Emanuel. He thinks that 75 years is plenty old, that we shouldn't really desire to live past that. Not that he would make that a policy. I'll once again add yet. But he thinks people should be informed about what they're doing when they decide to live past 75. He feels that we should understand when our consumption outweighs our contribution. That's when we have a, quote, duty to die. This is also what George Bernard Shaw, the playwright and avowed socialist, said in 1931, quote, I don't want to punish anybody, but there are an extraordinary number of people who I might want to kill. I think it would be a good thing to make everybody come before a properly appointed board, just as he might come before the income tax commissioner and say every five years or every seven years, just put them there and say, sir or madam, Will you be kind enough to justify your existence? 
If you're not producing as much as you consume, or perhaps a little bit more, then clearly we cannot use this big organization of our society for the purpose of keeping you alive, because your life does not benefit us, and it can't be of very much use to yourself. This is socialized medicine. This is communist by nature. Well, what about welfare? The welfare state, as we know, it was really instituted by that just wonderful progressive president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, it existed in various ways prior to him, but he was the one that really gave it the kick in the shorts that it needed. Now, if we go back, say, into the 1700s and most of the 1800s, if someone was down on their luck, what did they do? Well, they could go to family for help. That was typically the first option. If family wasn't willing or couldn't help, the individual would then turn to the church for help. In most cases, one of these two was able to help with the goal of getting the person back up and self-sustaining as fast as possible. As the 1800s neared the 1900s, various charitable organizations started to form and offer assistance. These organizations would rely on the giving of the general population in order to operate and offer help. Again, these were not meant to be permanent, just a brief amount of help through a hard time. Then as we rolled into the 1900s, the progressive era, when you think progressive, think socialist, more and more states started setting up something to give aid to individuals. According to socialwelfare.library.vcu.edu, by 1926, 40 states had systems of public welfare. This included public welfare for mothers with children or old age pensions, things like that. Then the Great Depression. And just as a side note, keep in mind that in the rest of the world, the Great Depression was known as a depression. See, depressions happen about every decade, or at least they used to when we allowed the economy to function mostly naturally. They're typically short-lived, relatively painless, definitely recoverable. The only reason our depression was termed the Great Depression, and the only reason it lasted so long, was because FDR had a progressive agenda. And as we know, the leftists never let a good crisis go to waste. The very actions of FDR prolonged and worsened the global depression in America, making ours the Great Depression. Funny how we're currently talking about a new depression that would rival the Great Depression. And again, we've got progressive, this time more or less Marxists, in power with an agenda. Huh. Anyway. The Great Depression happened, and the states that had decided they would be in on the welfare game weren't actually ready or able to handle the new influx of need. Now, yes, I know that Hoover started the process, but his act alone would have done very little to harm the country. It was the, uh, what, 40 years of the FDR presidency that really screwed this country up and created the current welfare system. I mean, just decades before the communists thought about trying to take it over and socialize it. Now, we were way ahead of the game on this one. FDR put in place the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Civil Works Administration and the Public Works Administration and the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Works Progress Administration, all using the power of government and government money, taxes, our taxes, to just create jobs. The Federal Housing Administration was created, and it stepped in and regulated mortgages, as well as other things, and then the Homeowners Loan Corporation, they were created, and they got their fingers in there, and created about one million long-term low-interest loans using our tax dollars. He tried to weasel into private business through the National Industrial Recovery Act, trying to kind of balance out business and the working-class American, but that was ruled unconstitutional. <laughs> Rats. And the Mac Daddy of them all, the Social Security Act, this was never going to work long term. It's a pyramid scheme. You need many more below you in order to pay your check. And today, well, too many takers, not enough makers. And not, incidentally, the fault of either one of those groups. The fault of the government for kicking the old, beat-up, rusted, useless can down the road over and over and over. I have very little hope that this program will be in place when I retire, if... If I retire, despite money being taken out of every single one of my checks for many, many moons now. Now we look at the welfare system. Gone are the days of family relying on family, people coming hat in hand to the local church for help. I mean, sure, those things happen, but they're the exception, not the rule, not the norm. Gone are the days where people weren't looking for a handout, but a hand up. Gone are the days that a man found at least a portion of his fulfillment by putting in a solid day's work earning himself a solid day's wage. 
because the government has stepped in and decided to emulate Orko Winfrey, practically firing cash out of the cash gun toward just anyone who wants it. The welfare system is out of control. I mean, look at where we are today. The government shuts down everything due to COVID and decides that they can just pay everyone out of, out of our tax dollars. They control most of the student loan market, so they just tell everyone not to worry about it for years now because of our tax dollars. They made a rule, because they can, that rent couldn't be collected and foreclosures couldn't be enforced, giving assistance, if you want to call it that, using our tax dollars. Unemployment insurance benefits used to last around 12 or 13 weeks. Now it's 26 most everywhere using our tax dollars. During the Obama era, a huge push to get everyone on food stamps was enacted, except that they can't be stamps, of course, because there's a stigma to stamps. No, it's a debit card now, so, you know, nobody knows. Much more comfortable. Also during Obama, 9.9 million jobs were created. Not bad. But 14.9 million people left the labor force, just decided it was easier, with all the welfare programs, to stay home. And if you were on food stamps, you likely qualified for a free Obama phone. So that was nice. Oh, all that was, of course, using using our tax dollars. Now, I think we'd be safe to say that uh, one way or another, we absolutely have socialized central government control over, I mean, just everything. And despite the Bible telling us to take care of each other, to take care of family, to either work or don't eat, the state and the federal governments have decided that doing the opposite is probably a better option. And because of this, charitable giving has cratered. Giving to churches is an afterthought. You know, throw a few bucks, some change, a button, and some pocket lint in the plate as it passes by. I actually did the calculation once a number of years ago, and I'm not doing it again. So this is from memory. But using the average income in the country, the number of people in the labor force, and then the percent that go to either a Catholic or Protestant church, and taking 10% off the top, and no, I don't believe the tithe is biblical, but I think that figure is a great place to start, just that subset of Americans giving that amount of money would have at that time paid for all government welfare programs and had a pile of money left over. In other words, if we acted as our brother's keeper, we could eliminate the government from the welfare business. But in general, and this may not be you, but in general, we pay our taxes, we give a pittance to churches, we throw a few bucks in the kettle at Christmas, and we rely on the government to kick in the rest. And the government doesn't care about people. They don't have an incentive to get people off of welfare. They just keep people nursing at the government teat. So I think we can mark this goal as complete, easily, easily complete, which brings our total to 22 of 32, which is just under 69%. With that, I'm going to thank you for joining me for another look at the 45 Communist Goals for America and say, until next time, right here. But I'm going to leave you with a quote and a story and let you ponder those until next time. Quote, I am for doing good to the poor, but I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. I observed that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves, and of course became poorer. And on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. So said Benjamin Franklin. And our true story. One day, in the House, a bill was taken up appropriating money for the benefit of a widow of a distinguished naval officer. Several beautiful speeches had been made in its support. The Speaker was just about to put the question when Representative David Crockett arose. Mr. Speaker, I have as much respect for the memory of the deceased and as much sympathy for the suffering of the living, if there be, as any man in this house, but we must not permit our respect for the dead or our sympathy for part of the living to lead us into an act of injustice to the balance of the living. I will not go into an argument to prove that Congress has not the power to appropriate this money as an act of charity. Every member on this floor knows it. We have the right as individuals to give away as much of our money as we please in charity, but as members of Congress, we have no right to appropriate a dollar of the public money. I am the poorest man on this floor. I cannot vote for this bill, but I will give one week's pay to the object, and if every member of Congress will do the same, it will amount to more than the bill asks. Later, when asked by a friend why he had opposed the appropriation, Crockett said, Several years ago, I was one evening standing on the steps of the Capitol with some members of Congress when our attention was attracted by a great light over in Georgetown. It was evidently a large fire. 
In spite of all that could be done, many houses were burned and many families made houseless. The weather was very cold, and when I saw so many children suffering, I felt that something ought to be done. A bill was introduced appropriating $20,000 for their relief. We rushed it through. The next summer, when riding one day in a part of my district, I saw a man in a field plowing. I spoke to the man. He replied politely, but rather coldly, You are Colonel Crockett. I shall not vote for you again. I begged him, Tell me what was the matter. Well, Colonel, you gave a vote last winter which shows that either you have not capacity to understand the Constitution or that you are wanting in the honesty and firmness to be guided by it. You voted for a bill to appropriate $20,000 to some sufferers by fire in Georgetown. Certainly nobody will complain that a great and rich country like ours should give $20,000 to relieve its suffering women and children, particularly with a full and overflowing treasury, I replied. It is not the amount, Colonel, it is the principle. The power of collecting and dispersing money at pleasure is the most dangerous power that can be entrusted to man. You will very easily perceive what a wide door this would open for fraud and corruption and favoritism on the one hand, and for robbing the people on the other. The people have delegated to Congress by the Constitution the power to do certain things. To do these, it is authorized to collect and pay monies, and for nothing else. Everything beyond this is usurpation and a violation of the Constitution. You have violated the Constitution in what I consider a vital point. It is a precedent fraught with danger to the country. For when Congress once begins to stretch its power beyond the limits of the Constitution, there is no limit to it and no security for the people. Now, sir, concluded Crockett, you know why I made that speech yesterday. You remember that I proposed to give a week's pay. There are in that house... Many very wealthy men, men who think nothing of spending a week's pay or a dozen of them for a dinner or a wine party when they have something to accomplish by it. Yet not one of them responded to my proposition. Money with them is nothing but trash when it has come out of the people. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.